Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day. Hammer all my day. As Zionism, especially liberal Zionism, exhausted itself, the humanistic constructs of liberal Zionism always in conflict with itself because of its refusal to grant Palestinians equal civil and political rights, has led many Israelis to embrace a far more chauvinistic and fanatic religious Zionism. What does this mean for Israel? And as important, what does this mean for Judaism? The Zionist movement, which became a dominating force with the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948, has sought to shut out Jewish critics of Zionism. It not only maligned Jews that did not embrace Zionism, but labels them anti-Jews, self-hating Jews, or counter-Jews. This war within Judaism, between those who put Israel at the center of Jewish identity and those who do not, has ripped apart the Jewish collective. As Rabbi Shaul Magid writes, the Talmudic sages teach that the heretic is actually worse than the idolater in their estimation. Unlike the idolater, the heretic subverts Judaism from the inside. Rabbi Magid goes on to argue that the demand for the full Zionization of American Jewry is an attempt to brand all who do not give their primary loyalty to the state of Israel as heretics or apostates. This battle within Zionism raises crucial questions. What role does exile play in Jewish belief? What role does the state of Israel play in Jewish belief? Is Zionism the only true refuge for Jews? Are Jews who reject Zionism and Israel's occupation of the Palestinians who embrace lives outside of Israel upholding or defying Jewish tradition? Is the nation-state the best or the healthiest collective structure for Jews? Is a Jewish homeland, known by Jews as the land of Israel, connected to sovereignty? Judaism existed, of course, long before the concept of sovereignty, and the land of Israel has been the homeland of the Jews for millennia without sovereignty. Is the concept of homeland dependent on statehood or even residence in Israel? Or is this concept in its origins, a theological concept. Joining me to discuss Zionism and its relationship to Jewish belief is Rabbi Shaul Magid, professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and senior fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard University, as well as the author of The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. So I uh, read your book and loved it. Um, I come, as you know, I went to Harvard Divinity School and I'm out of a a Presbyterian household. Uh, And one of the things that I watched, uh, and I some some feel have your some sense you're reacting to as well, is uh, especially during crises like the Vietnam War, uh, what a large percentage of uh, Christian clergy uh, were willing, unfortunately, to uh, sanctify war, sanctify the state, the American state, um, uh, and that 
and my father was in the anti-war movement, those who uh, challenged that sanctification of state power uh, uh, were rapidly marginalized, uh, not only within the society, but often within the institutional church as well. Are you writing about much the same phenomena? To some degree. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's an honor for me to be here. To some degree, I think there is um, a, 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 an intersection between religion and politics that emerges through Zionism that really hadn't existed for Jews for a very long time before that. And navigating those very, very complicated waters of politics, especially when you're dealing with as politics almost always does, ruling over another people. Um, religion often comes in to challenge the political and then is sometimes used to, um, to confirm the political. And I think that that's part of what, what the, the relationship between Zionism and Judaism is today. What role does the political play within the history of Judaism in exile, because the assumption that I begin with is that the Jews still live in a state of exile, whether they live in the land of Israel or whether they live in the diaspora. And I think that distinction between diaspora and exile is an important one. It's an important part of the book. Explain that concept, what you're doing. Di diaspora is really a descriptive term. Um, it means dispersion. It was created by the Greeks, maybe to refer to the Jews or maybe not. But in any event, it's something that doesn't really have much of a value to it. It's simply the existence of people who are living outside of a homeland. Whereas exile is a, um, a really a theological term. It's not a descriptive term. It's really an existential term. The idea that somehow the covenant as it exists is not in a state of fulfillment, but in a, in a process of becoming. And that that is not something that is only part of Judaism. I argue that exile is at the very center of Judaism. In fact, Judaism as we know it today is born in exile and is in many ways a response to it. And, and, and flesh that out, the idea that you could live in the ho Jewish homeland, as it's called, and yet be in a state of exile because exile me exile simply means certainly from from the from the traditional perspective it means a state of um of becoming it means a state of not yet it means a state of existing outside of the fulfillment of the covenantal promise that's made by the prophets so that in a, in a way the end of exile really is in the prophetic imagination, the end of exile is simply the coming of the Messiah. And since Jews don't believe that the Messiah has come, um, they're living in a state of exile. I think Zionism to some degree challenges that by making the claim that one could end, end exile without its messianic fulfillment. And that's part of what Zionism seek to accomplish, sought to accomplish in establishing a sovereign Jewish nation state. Let's talk about Zionism itself as a movement, uh, at, at its inception, a very marginal movement, now a very powerful movement. You write in the book, liberal Zionism hasn't had a new idea in almost 40 years. But let's talk about Zionism and uh, its interplay now within Judaism. Well, I mean, Zionism emerges in late 19th century Europe as a response to what became known as the Jewish question, 
which was the new anti-Semitism that emerged after the emancipation of the Jews and the unwillingness or resistance of European society to fully integrate the Jews and question whether really Jews could even be integrated into European society. I mean, in certain sense, it goes back even to Marx's famous essay on that question. And Herzl then writes another essay in 1897, which asks the question again. So the Zionism emerges as a Jewish movement of... Um, of, um, in a certain sense, Jewish movement of liberation based on, on Western European nationalism as a way to solve the Jewish question, to say that since there's no solution to the Jewish question in Europe, the only solution is that the Jews become a normal, a normal nation, that is, with a land and a language and a country. And the way to do that was to establish a Jewish nation state. Now, whether it was going to happen in the land of Israel, historic land of Israel or not, was another question. But that seemed to be the obvious place, although it contained certain very, very deep problems that we're still facing in 2024, which is what do you do with the fact that there's other people living there? But in any event, I think that, that the Zionism as a solution to a European Jewish problem, and it really was a European Jewish problem, is, um, is in a certain sense made more powerful by the collapse of Europe by the 1880s, 1890s, certainly by the 1930s, where it just simply became impossible or extremely dangerous for Jews to continue to live in Europe. So Zionism became the alternative, and there were many other alternatives at the time that was the most uh, reasonable, although not certainly not the easiest alternative. You write that Zionism actually buttresses anti-Semitism. Explain that idea. I, I mean, buttresses or there's a, 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 a complicated relationship between Zionism and anti-Semitism. And Herzl knew that and basically said um, in a diary entry that the anti-Semites can be some of our best advocates because in a way what Herzl was saying to the anti-Semites is I have a solution to the Jews. I'll just take them out of Europe and we'll put them in, you know, a nation state somewhere far away in the Middle East. And for a lot of European anti-Semites, that was a perfectly that was a perfectly fine solution, especially given colonialism. So whether, you know, the big, you know, one of the big questions that is asked these days is, is Israel a settler colonial project or a colonial project? I mean, that's that's something that can be debated, but it really can't be debated that Zionism benefited from colonialism. And the idea that we can establish a Jewish nation state of Europe, mostly European Jews, although Jews from the Arab land certainly came at the establishment of the state, in part of the world that was being colonized by Europe, in a certain sense, made perfect sense. So, you know, in a way, um, Zionism was able to be as successful as it was for a number of reasons. First of all, it focused on the land of Israel, which spoke to the kind of historical and theological aspirations of Jews. And second of all, Europe began to crumble and it became necessary, almost like an emergency situation. But there were problems that were inherent in Zionism from the beginning that I think we're still living with and we're seeing the, the fruits of today. You talk about Zionism as essentially the, one of the core uh, manifestations of the ideology is that it posits that Israel or the Jewish state makes you safe. You'll never be safe in the diaspora. And you break down anti-Semitism into three parts. I can't remember whether you get that from Hannah Arendt or whether that's your own formulation, but explain and, and, you, and, 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 and the, the levels of danger from anti-Semitism is really determined by those 
three different forms or expressions of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I borrow it from Arendt, but Arendt uses it in her essay, um, Reflections on Little Rock, really about racism, that there are three forms of racism, what she calls the um, um, the kind of the individual, the social, and the political. Uh, or And in a sense, she makes the claim that I don't want to get into the Little Rock article about racism, but what, I, what I'm saying is that there are various forms of anti-Semitism. There are people that don't like Jews for whatever reason, but their dislike of Jews really remains very much within their private sphere. She calls it private, social, and political. And then there's the social anti-Semitism, which extends out of the private sphere into the social sphere. For example, like, you know, summer camps and country clubs and all of the things like that. And then there's the political anti-Semitism that actually becomes part of the political culture. And for Arendt on the racism question, it's only when racism becomes political that it becomes really dangerous. And I was made, I was trying to, you know, bring that to the question of anti-Semitism to show that, in fact, the difference between European anti-Semitism, certainly before the war, and anti-Semitism that exists in the United States today is that in the United States, anti-Semitism rarely really reaches the level of the political. It stays much more into the in the individual and the social sphere, which is not saying it's not a problem, but it doesn't necessarily curtail the ability for Jews to live as Jews in the United States, which is why I say in the book that I don't feel like Jews in America are oppressed. Erin also, when she writes about anti-Semitism, talks about the difference between vice and crime. Uh, and she actually writes in Origins of Totalitarianism that Marcel Proust uh, perhaps explicated uh, the, the nature of anti-Semitism better than anyone else in France at the turn of the century. And it was this uh, notion, of course, Jews are, before the Dreyfus Affair, are invited into the Salon as kind of exotic figures, Swan being an example. After Dreyfus, this is the Alfred Dreyfus, the officer who was falsely accused of, he's Jewish, of uh, selling secrets to the Germans, um, you uh, see uh, Jews shunned. But she, she says that uh, cr- for a crime can be ex- expurgated. It, 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 you can, you can uh, you know, serve time, you can be punished. Whereas it, when you're infected with the vice of uh of, of, you know, quote unquote, Jewishness or whatever racism that can never be uh, washed away, that it's always there. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of anti-Semitism? Yeah, I mean, in a certain way, um, she's getting she's getting that a little bit, perhaps from Max Nordau, who calls anti-Semitism a disease. Right? And it's the same basic idea. I, I mean, she uses this category of what she calls eternal anti-Semitism, which she uses critically because she really doesn't feel like anti-Semitism could be understood if it's understood as some kind of an eternal hatred, although a lot of scholars of anti-Semitism make that argument. Um, I think that that what I tried to do in that chapter on anti-Semitism is, is really playing off Arendt's article, the long article, unfinished article that she wrote on anti-Semitism and also the, the you know, the, the part of her totalitarianism on uh, the origins of totalitarianism and anti-Semitism is that we have to understand it within a particular historical context. And we can't just call everything the same thing. We can't just use this umbrella term to define how Jews were thought about 
in Christian Europe, how Jews are thought about in, in Muslim lands, how Jews are thought about in America, how Jews are thought about by Palestinians in Israel. Like if you're just going to use that term anti-Semitism as a catch-all for um, for hatred of the Jew or Judenhass, as it was called in Germany, she feels like we're not really we're not really understanding the phenomena. We're just in a certain sense weaponizing it. So she took anti-Semitism very seriously, as as I think we as I think we all do. But she felt like um, by not understanding it and by not only not understanding it, but attempting to claim that it's everywhere and always, whether there are Jews or whether there are no Jews, um, is is a problem in terms of understanding the phenomenon. I want to talk about your own experiences in Israel. You grew up in a kind of counterculture environment and you end up in a yeshiva, Meir Sharim, which is this orthodox religious section of Jerusalem. You served in the IDF. These were formative experiences in terms of your own understanding both of Israel and Judaism. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, I I was a kind of, uh, uh, you know, wandering Jew, so to speak, of, you know, someone who grew up in a middle class countercultural environment and went to Israel and was completely taken in by uh, by the country and also by the religion. And so in a certain sense, I sought out the most extreme form of the religion of Judaism and ended up in the ultra-Orthodox world of Meishirim, which was really very anti-Zionist, but that didn't really concern me at that point. I was really looking to live some uh, alternative lifestyle, I suppose. And, and I found in ultra-Orthodoxy a great way to exist, in, in, you know, in, in a certain sense, par- being part of a parallel world. I, you know, I, I became disenchanted with it over the course of time because my own, I think, liberal or even progressive proclivities really started to bump up against a very deep sense of, um, for lack of a better term, you know, misogyny, racism, you know, uh, and, and I felt like Jew, I felt like ultra orthodoxy was really trying to maintain or retain the past. And what originally drew me to kind of settler Zionism or the Zionism of Rabbis, Rabbis Cook is that it was a Judaism that was looking toward the future. And I think that's how I understood my own experience, living in a society that was trying to preserve the past versus a society that was trying to create a future. And I became very kind of drawn into that future looking society until I began to see its own underside. Um, in terms of how it understood the people that were the other people that were living there, and the fact that um, the Arabs, the Palestinians, were really not considered part of that future vision. You call it a kind of holy land fantasy. What do you mean? It's a holy land. Yeah, it was a holy land fantasy. And and in the days when I was there in the 1980s, it really was a fantasy, uh, the way it isn't now. For example, you were able to drive to the beach in Gaza. You were able to go to Ramallah or to go to Nablus and to go to the marketplace. In a sense, you were footloose in the land of Israel. And there were people there that really did not like you and maybe wished you harm. But at that time, there were very few that were willing to do that. That changed after the first intifada in 1989. But certainly before that, there was really a sense of certainly someone coming from the United States living in some kind of a a fantasy. I'm going to read this passage, and then you can talk about the IDF. I did not lose my Zionism in left-wing protests. I lost my Zionism in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. It was there that I witnessed the depths and intractability of ethno-national chauvinism. 
It was there that I understood what longtime leader of the Jewish National Fund and lifelong Zionist Yosef Weiss said long ago in his diary, popularized in the 2021 film Blue Box, quote, the Arabs will never forgive us for what we have done to them. Talk about the IDF and that experience. Uh, I, I think a lot of people, uh, certainly not everybody, but a lot of people in the, in the IDF were confronted with the realities of occupation. And I wouldn't even call it occupation, the realities of what it means to dominate another society in ways that, that Israelis that are not serving in the IDF don't really experience. Now, of course, many, many serve in the IDF. And I think what I, what I came to realize is that when you're walking through a Palestinian village, fully armed, uh, with a loaded gun, and you see the hatred in the eyes of the children towards you, you really start to understand it. They are, you are dominating their lives. You're humiliating their father. You're arresting their brother. There's just a sense of hatred that is, is, is palpable and not only palpable, but from my perspective, fully understandable. And if I would have been in their situation, I would have felt the same way. And I think I came out of that experience um, even with all of the, you know, rationalizations that we were taught, this is necessary for security and so on and so forth. I mean, that may be true, but it doesn't mean that the domination is any more excusable and that the hatred is any more unreasonable. And so it was, that's really, in a certain sense, where the fantasy cracked. When I realized for me to live the fantasy of life in the land of Israel means that I have to control the movement of another people. And that suddenly, you know, it, it just seemed to me um, inexcusable. You write in the book uh, about Holocaust, uh, how the Holocaust is taught in Jewish education. Uh, you said it's instilled a sense of permanent existential crisis, what political science Ian Lustig calls Holocaustia, creating a perpetual state of Israeli exceptionalism and giving rise to a parliamentary perspective in which anti-Semitism has all but become Israel's foreign policy. Explain that and, and explain how Zionism uses the Holocaust. I think it's very interesting because um, people like David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, was actually quite against using the Holocaust as a justification for Zionism. But what's come to be, and this is Lustig's Holocaustia, is that Zionism, uh, is that the Holocaust has become the kind of, the re, the, the reinstantiation of trauma to, uh, legitimate and even necessitate the existence of a sovereign Jewish state. So taking sixth graders from Israel to Auschwitz, and then having them have that experience, a very traumatic experience, even for the Jews, not of European descent, for the Jews from Morocco, or from Algeria, or from, from Yemen, to take them to Poland to experience the remnants of the Holocaust, in a certain sense is used to instill a sense of patriotism in the need for the state of Israel, as if there is the state of Israel or the Holocaust. Those were the two options. And given those two options, who wouldn't choose the former? So, I mean, I think you we find it uh, elsewhere in statements made by um, 
by um, Yitzhak Shamir, and even Netanyahu, that the borders of Israel are like the borders of Auschwitz. I mean, those kinds of comments. And, and I would even I would even venture to say the way in which there is the analogies between what happened on October 7th and the Holocaust. There's a way in which the Holocaust is it becomes, I wouldn't say a weapon, it becomes the perennial justification for the need of a Jewish state. Now, you can make that argument, and we can debate that argument in a number of different ways. But I think educationally, it what it does it it, it just it just it kind it's almost like re-traumatizing the Jews again and again and again. And I can't see that actually a healthy people will emerge from that. Well, they they've publicly Netanyahu has called the Palestinians Nazis. Yes, right. Of course. I mean, the irony is the Palestinians had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Right. And not only that, I would say that if you're going to make some kind of a comparison between those kibbutzim in the Gaza envelope that were savagely destroyed and the Warsaw Ghetto, um, then Zionism hasn't accomplished anything. I mean, I think in a certain sense, the analogy itself undermines that which it's trying to prove. So... Look, I, I think that 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 certainly today the book came out. The book was obviously written before October seventh. It came out after October seventh. Um, Jews feel traumatized by October seventh, understandably so. But I don't think that 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 the that working, you know, as as Lustig said in in another article after October seventh, vengeance is not a national policy. And I think that's what Israelis and Jews worldwide are trying to grapple with at this point. Talk about the interplay between Judaism and the Israeli state. When I lived in Israel, I assume it's even worse now, but I think Reformed rabbis couldn't, uh, had no kind of religious legitimacy. Even then, the Orthodox had complete control. David Hartman was running the Hartman Institute, but he was very marginalized. This is kind of liberal Judaism. But talk about that relationship between the state and between Judaism. There's something that's very ironic about that, because Israel is found as a secular Jewish state. Zionism was a secular movement, and the religious sector of the early Zionist movement was actually quite small. Um, and Gurion, when he, when he wanted, when he was in the process of creating a coalition, wanted to invite the religious parties into the project. And the religious parties were actually quite resistant because many of those religious Jews who were part of those religious parties, even though they were sympathetic to Zionism because Zionism allowed them to live in the land of Israel, they understood the what they considered to be the heretical nature of secular Zionism. So Ben-Gurion made a deal that he called the status quo. And that was that he gave the religious parties jurisdiction over a number of things. One of them was marriage, another was divorce, another was conversion, and another was burial rights. So that in a sense, as opposed to America that has a separation of church and state, Israel doesn't have a separation of church and state in that way. So that the the Israeli rabbinate is actually a government agency. And they have jurisdiction over those particular um, uh, uh those particular areas. So when people say, you know, is Judaism the official religion of Zion? Uh, uh, the, is Judaism the official religion of Israel? The answer is no. The official religion of Israel is Orthodox Judaism. 
And um, they were able to nullify or not accept any conversions that were being done by non-Orthodox Jews. Now, this is changing. And, and by the way, there's no civil marriage in Israel is either. So a, a, a representative of the Israeli rabbinate has to be present at a, at a Jewish wedding for the wedding to be sanctioned by the state. This is changing, and there's some loosening up of some of those strictures. And I think that probably at some point in time, there will be some form of civil marriage. And non-Orthodox rabbis, while they're not officially recognized, they are given a little bit more authority than they were in the past, as well as non-Orthodox Jewish institutions. But religion, I should say Jewish religion, not Islam or Christianity, Jewish religion in Israel is really... Um, run by Orthodox Judaism. And Orthodox Judaism is expanding. It's certainly grown uh, quite a bit since I lived in Israel. Well, tremendously, not only among the ultra-Orthodox communities, but among the national religious Orthodox communities. I mean, one of the things that Ben-Gurion did by making a deal with the, uh, with the ultra-Orthodox parties or the Orthodox parties in the status quo is he really thought that most of the ultra-Orthodox Jews would leave. Either they would leave, because why would they want to live in a secular Jewish state, or that the next generation would secularize. And that did not happen. In fact, the opposite happened. And so with very, very large families, ultra-Orthodox Jews, five, six children on average, national Zionist Orthodox Jews, maybe a little bit less. The secular Jewish population is probably around, you know, two, two point something children per family. So over the course of time, um, um, it's expanding tremendously. Plus, of among Jews in the diaspora that immigrate to the Israel, it's something like 70 something percent of them are Orthodox. So, is, you know, Israel is becoming a more religious country. It's becoming a less liberal country. And I think we're seeing the, the we're seeing the effects of that in, in a number of different ways. Talk about the relationship between the settler movement, the, the kind of fanatic or right-wing Zionism of the settlers. They, they are now not only within the Netanyahu government, but they are within the IDF. I think the chief of staff comes out of the settler uh, movement. This is something that Again, 20 years ago when I lived in Israel, uh, settlers uh, or people who, who, who embrace that kind of, uh, uh, you know, chauvinistic Zionism, you know, like Mer Kahana. I mean, I was in Israel. You wrote a book on Kahana, but I, I knew him and was there. But he was, his party was outlawed in 1994. Uh, Koch was, he, he himself later assassinated. He wasn't allowed to run. That's all changed. Uh, and, and many of these people are heirs to Kahana. Um, th that's a new phenomena. Yeah. I mean, there is an idea, part of the ideology of the settler movement is something called Greater Israel. And Greater Israel is an ideology that all of the land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea is Jewish land. And so the idea of the West Bank or the Gaza Strip as being Palestinian land or as Palestinians having rights to that land is really kind of subverted and undermined by that notion of Greater Israel. And it's arguably the case that the, the government itself is 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 advocating a kind of greater Israel ideology, which governments previously had rejected. Um, 1977, Menachem Begin is elected as prime minister from the Likud party, a right-wing party. He himself was nominally religious, but he really, you know, adhered to a particular kind of greater Israel ideology. What's happened is that with the expansion of the settlements, you have an entire um, culture, I wouldn't even call it a subculture anymore, of Israelis who are raised with a particular kind of religious 
messianic ideology whereby all of the land has to remain in Jewish hands, that only Jews should have the legal rights, and that Palestinians who want to live there live there as second-class citizens. This this is something that, as you said, in the 1980s when Kahana was around, was considered to be so extreme that even the right wing rejected him. But now it's really become normative or normal, not only among the extreme right-wing settlers, but even some of the more center-right members of the Israeli parliament. Liberal Zionism. We'll go back to that quote I read. It doesn't hasn't. What's what's happening? Is it withering away? Is it being replaced by religious Zionism? Is it finding a new identity? What what's going on with it? It's a good question. I, I think that liberal Zionism, first of all, is something that only really existed in the United States. I mean, there is an Israeli left, or there was an Israeli left. But the Israeli left was really not liberal Zionism. The Israeli left in many ways was far to the left of liberal Zionism. So liberal Zionism in some way begins with Louis Brandeis back in the in the teens of the 20th century who made that famous speech, I think it was 1915, where he said that, you know, to be a good American is to be a Zionist, and to be a Zionist is to be a good American, that the liberal values that Brandeis espoused were uh, the liberal values of of, uh, of of Zionism. This is obviously long before a state. And to some degree, I think liberal Zionism was able to survive the establishment of the state and even up until the 1970s. Um, but it, it's, it's, liberal Zionism is in, a, is in a totally defensive mode at this point because you have a, a, a group of people who consider themselves liberal Zionists, who are committed to liberal ideas, who are committed to equality, who are committed to justice, and they're supporting a state that's not committed to those values and not committed to those ideas. So the question is, what value does it have for a liberal, a liberal movement to support an illiberal state? Now, we can argue about the, the nature of the state, but one of the things that is, you know, in a certain sense, the the underside of democracy is that, you know, the people that are living in the state choose the state. And the state has, you know, it's not that Netanyahu win in a fluke election. Um, Netanyahu's been winning for a long time. And the Israeli left not only is now in the opposition, the Israeli left didn't even make enough votes to be in the government at all. So we're in a situation where I think that my perspective is that liberal Zionism doesn't really have any new ideas, in part because the country that it supports has chosen a different path. I want to talk about BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction Movement. You, along with two other great scholars I admire, uh, Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, do not support BDS. I am a strong supporter of BDS. But I want you to lay out why you, you don't support BDS. It's a very good question, um, and I don't have a very good answer. <laughs> I think I, I, I don't. I, I would. I would say it in another way. I don't really have a rational answer. I have an emotional answer. I, I can't really think of a good reason why not to support a nonviolent movement that's seeking to end the occupation. Um, now, some people in BDS are seeking to eradicate the state completely. Others in BDS simply are trying to eradicate the occupation. I think for me, I, I don't, I think two things. I don't really feel like um, it, it will have the impact that the anti-apartheid movement had, for example, of really forcing South Africa to end apartheid. Uh, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it has that power. I don't think it has the teeth to do that. 
Uh, and I think it also becomes so mixed up with a particular kind of, 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 of left community that simply doesn't acknowledge the viability of the existence of the state itself to exist, which I don't support. I mean, I do think that the state has a right to exist, like any states have a right to exist, or I don't know if I don't know if I think any states have a right to exist. Well, you, but, you argue in the book that you can't use that term. Yeah, I right. don't use I don't I don't like to use the term of right to exist. But I would say it differently. Israel as a state exists, right? And and um, uh, the question that interests me is what kind of a state is it going to be, and that you know that's where my energy is, and I don't think that my energy is well spent if I if I sign on to the BDS movement. I mean, for those of us who abhor violence, and I have been in, I knew two of the leaders of Hamas and was quite upfront. This was during the suicide bombing attacks in Jerusalem, which I had to cover. Uh, and I argued both in the home of uh, Abdelaziz Rantisi, one of the co-founders of Hamas, and then after he was assassinated, Niza Rayan, that by carrying out indiscriminate suicide bombing attacks against Israeli civilians, they were essentially abrogating or taking from themselves the moral high ground they had, not to mention the fact that it was a war crime. But among Palestinian friends, without being a strong supporter of BDS, I don't know how I can counter uh, this call to resist through violence. I, I hear you. I, I, think that's, I, I, I think that's a very serious critique. And I, I, again, I don't really have an answer for it. Um, I I think that what happens from within the circles that I live in, anyway, assigning on to BTS really puts you outside the conversation. And at this point, I, I prefer to be inside that conversation. But but again, I don't I, I can I can underst I can understand BDS if if it's a movement that's seeking to end the occupation and create justice and equality for Palestinians from everybody everybody that lives from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, I can support that as a nonviolent movement because I agree with those goals. Do I think that those goals can be achieved with or without BDS? Um, the argument in my book is not as long as Zionism is the ideology that dominates the state. I want to ask you about Jeremy Corbyn. That was another... Yeah. Uh, so I, I think now there's very strong evidence that anti-Semitism was weaponized to bring down Corbyn and his supporters, many of whom were Jewish. But you're, you're, you uh, say that, you know, he may be an anti-Semite. I just am curious what your perspective is now on the whole Corbyn, uh, you know, the campaign against Corbyn. Yeah, it's a good question. It was a kind of a bit, a bit of a throwaway line that maybe on second thought I probably... <laughs> Like, I I really, no, I I honestly don't feel like I know enough about the the kind of ins and outs of British parliamentary politics. Um, I don't necessarily think that, um, look, I would say that all I know about Corbyn is what he said. And um, there were a lot of things about of what he said that I agreed with, and there were things he said that I didn't agree with. You know, determining whether somebody is an anti-Semite is a much more complicated process in terms of what's the intention of what they said. And from the distance that I have, I really wasn't able to kind of ascertain that. I I, I do think though that um, the 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 weaponization of anti-Semitism and it's not being used by people uh, against people like Jeremy Corbyn. I mean. 
just yesterday it was used against a colleague of mine who's a historian of Zionism, Derek Penzlar, who was appointed to be the co-director of the Task Force on Anti-Semitism at Harvard University. I mean, who is a Zionist? So I think that um, it, it's become a term that's been used, and, I, and here I really fault the, the ADL and Jonathan Greenblatt so extensively and so sloppily that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. Um, if somebody that's a Zionist and spent his entire adult life teaching Jewish history and, um, and, 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 and Jewish students, for that person to be called an anti-Semite because he, because he criticizes Israel, it, the, the term loses all of its meaning. You begin one chapter with these three quotes, and I want to ask you to respond to them. The first is from David Ben-Gurion, the Bible is our mandate. The second, from Pat Boone, that horrible singer. <laughs> uh, the, echo, <laughs> the theme song to the film Exodus, this land is mine, God gave this land to me. And then Danny Deno, this is our deed to our land, holding up a copy of the Bible before the UN Security Council in 2019. Talk about that appropriation of a divine mandate to justify a colonial settler project. I think this is one of the deep-seated problems of the political ideology of Zionism, not only of religious Zionism, because Danny Danone, I mean, I don't know Danny Danone's religious life, but uh, ben, David Ben-Gurion certainly was not a religious Jew. And and yet the idea that um, uh, the notion of what, what Chaim Gans calls proprietary Zionism, which basically begins with the assumption the land of Israel belongs to the Jews and we will do with it what we want. And maybe we will give a piece of it to other people under conditions that we determine is something that really does. Um, I think, I think really is embedded in the entire Zionist project. And I think that's why we keep hitting our head against the wall and, 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 we have to get outside of this notion of, of proprietary Zionism, that somehow it's our land because God gave it to us. Very innocuously, I mean, I was raised on the movie Exodus. A whole generation of people were raised on the movie of Exodus. We, we must have heard that line being sung by Pat Doon hundreds of times, and no one's ever thought about it. But wait, that's a, that's a, that's a strangely chauvinistic thing to say, right? Um, I think Zionism is a, nation, is, is a modern national movement. I don't know that its relationship to Jewish theology and Jewish history and Jewish messianism is that productive. But I don't think that's only being espoused by the religious sector. I think it's being espoused by everyone from David Ben-Gurion to Danny Danone to whoever wrote the lyrics to that background song. <laughs> you have had these prescient critics, um, Yeshiashu Leibowitz, pretty amazing. He really foresaw the dark places Israel would go if it continued to occupy the Palestinians, Martin Buber, Hannah Arendt. Um, and you quote Isaac Basheva, singer, a writer I love. Um, and he wrote that exile was necessary to perpetuate a longing that produces Jewish genius. And for singer, Yiddish was the language of exile. I, I mean, it's a, it's a really a fascinating, it's a fascinating essay that I discovered pretty late in writing the book. And, and then decided that he needed to be included because I think he, because Singer called, considers himself, Singer considered himself a Zionist. Um, and, and yet 
he understood that the greatness of Judaism, the genius of Judaism, was that which was produced in exile. And not only in exile, but I think this is Singer's point, because of exile. There's something about that experience, whether it's an experience of marginalization, whether it's an experience of disempowerment, whether it's an experience of being um, apolitical or non-political, enabled Judaism to form and develop in ways that created a an entirely um, distinctive, robust, um, and ethical tradition to some degree, with all of the caveats. And I think that um, there's a line that I also quote from Gershom Shalom in his interview with Mukitsur from the 70s, where he said that Zionism sought to end exile, and it was those that were opposed to it that understood it more than those that were in favor. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, is to say that if we think about exile as something that's not negative, that's not about punishment, but that's about the cultivation of a humane society, an ethical, moral, humane society, and and push away the idea that this is the you know the footsteps of the coming of the Messiah, and just try to in a sense live exile fully. I think we have a better chance of creating the kind of society that a lot of Jews like me can be proud of. Well, you quote James Cone in the book, the great theologian. That's not accidental, yeah. um, and it dovetails. I think his writing dovetails very much with where you're coming from, uh, and this notion that. Uh, by being in exile, uh, one doesn't identify as a religious with centers of power, uh, but centers of marginalization. Uh, and, you know, let's make a list of the great writers on European fascism. I would, I would just off the top of my head say 80% of them are probably Jewish. Uh, let's make a list of the great writers of racism in America. And, you know, W.E. Du Bois, Cohn, others are black. Uh, and, and that's because not, you're marrying the power of religious convictions, tremendous intellect with a closeness to a marginalized or an oppressed community. And that I think is what gives all great religious writing, Christian, Jewish, whatever it's power. And I, I think you're kind of essentially raising that as an idea. Yeah, and Du Bois is someone who's very important to me, and and Jane, and Cohn's one. I think maybe his last book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Yeah, very very powerful. And I think that you know one of the things I'm working on now is actually a, a, a book on on critical race theory and anti-Semitism, because I think some of these writers, the two that you mentioned, and others as well, um, really do speak to the to what it means to be outside of the orbit of the political. But but again, I think in a certain sense, um, if you know, the one could say as an elevator pitch, I mean, Zionism was a movement that was started by Jews who basically just got tired of being in exile. They got tired of being marginalized. They got tired of being disempowered. They felt that their lives were not, were, were in danger. But as Shalom said, you know, Power is a very dangerous thing, and nationalism is a very dangerous thing. And even though it might have been necessary, I think part of the hazards of Zionism is that it almost happened too quickly, and not a fault, not, not any fault of its own. It just it began to gain steam, and then Europe fell apart, and it became ultimately an emergency situation. And all of the problems that Martin Buber and Leibovitch and many other people noticed suddenly got pushed away because it really became about saving Jewish bodies. And, and I think that those problems 
continue to exist into 2024. I think those problems in a certain way created conditions that made October 7th possible, not to say that it was the, you know, the conditions that, not, not to say that that was the fault of Israelis, obviously, but the, the conditions of a culture of domination. And that's what Israel has become. The military experts would say that's necessary. And maybe that's true, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't create all kinds of very dangerous situations and that it doesn't deteriorate, from my perspective, the, the, the beauty and the genius of Judaism. Right. That was Rabbi Shaul Magid, professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. Mm-hmm.